All right, let's do this. I'm going to pray. We're going to get into it. God, we want to thank you for your grace, for mercy, and for your love. Thank you for even the celebration this week, this weekend of, of a country that allows us to engage our faith openly and honestly. We pray, we pray this morning, God, for the men and women who are serving around the world in our military, that your blessing would be upon them today and, and every day, that you would, keep, you would keep them safe. And Lord, we know that the, the cost of war can be very high and that some of them have given their life to this country. And so I pray a blessing upon their families. I pray that your word would spread through the men and women who serve in the military and that they would know and trust in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So this is the last church in the series of the seven churches of Revelation. Anybody know what church number seven, what the name is? For real? You all get an app, Tim? We need, oh, Jack said it? Good. Now, how would you pronounce it? Laodicea or Laodicea? Jack has an accent, that's why. So he went Laodicea. And it is the last of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, this city was a realtor's dream because of its location. It was a trading giant. All these roads came into the city, and because of the trade there, it was very, very wealthy. One of the most wealthy cities in all of the ancient worlds. In 60 AD, it was destroyed by an earthquake. And most times in the Roman Empire, when a, when a prominent city would be destroyed, Rome would step in and help that city rebuild. But not so for this, for this city. They had everything they needed. They had all the resources they needed. They had all the money they needed. They had all the workers they needed. They were too proud of their wealth and their prominence to take a handout from anyone. Now, the city itself was famous for two, two things. First, they, had, they bred this type of sheep in the city, and it, had a, it was a black sheep. It had a very dark, um, violet-colored colored black wool, and it was very, very soft. And so they made four types of garments that were shipped out all over the world. And they also made this, this special tunic that was, it was characteristic for Laodicea. In fact, if you were walking down the street and you were wearing one, people would look at you and kind of give you the, hey, Laodicean, huh? And, and because it was in style back then, and they were very well known, and these things were sent out all over the place. And because of that, with all the trade coming in, with this garment export going out, they were very, very wealthy. Now, the next thing that they were famous for in the ancient world was it, it was a, a city that had a medical school. And in this medical school, they were known for two things. They had created, developed this ear salve that you would put in your ears if your ears became infected or had open sores or anything 
of that, of, you know, that type of thing if you were sick. But they also made this certain powder that was good for your eyes. So if your eyes were sore or you had sores in your eyes or your eyes were weak, you would get this Phrygian powder and you would mix it with something and you would put it into your eyes. Well, this was very, very famous. In fact, this would be exported around the world because everybody wanted this. In fact, I still believe it's sold on Amazon.com today if you look really, really hard. And so they made tons of money from this medical school. So they have this, this garment exports that are going out. And they have this medicine that's going out and all this trade that's coming in. The city, the town of Laodicea, they put their trust, they put their faith in their material possessions. And the things that, that they had, they put it in outward beauty. They put their, their, uh, their, they focused on living a very lavish lifestyle. And they were very proud of it. Now, the one drawback to the city was uh, it, it had a lack of a, of a good water supply. It was created where it was created, not because of the natural resources that were in the area, but because of all these trade routes coming in. So they had a real problem with water. In fact... Water had to be piped in through aqueducts from a city that was about six miles away. And by the time it, it would get there, you know, nasty water running through the desert, it, it, you know, that's, that was their water supply. And so in the dry seasons, the water supply would go down a little bit. And I will tell you this, any amount of money will not buy rain. And so this was the only real drawback that the city actually experienced. The church in Laodicea was founded probably on Paul's third missionary journey when he was in Ephesus. Now, there's nothing that says he actually visited this church, but he did write a letter because we see in Colossians that he mentions Colossians 4 that he wrote this church a letter. But it seems that the letter has been lost, which I would love to see what Paul had written to this church. But what we do have is what Jesus would say to this church in, the letter, in his letter to them in Revelation. So we are going to go Revelation 3, chapter Verse 14, ta-da. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a, there's a lot going on in this letter, and we're not going to be able to get to it all today. So we're just going to focus kind of on the first half of the letter. So let's go. I don't think, is this working at all? No? Okay. So I'm just going to put this down. Oh, you know why? Because it's off. <laughs> See, that's how good those guys are back there. They know. All right. 
These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So Jesus, once again, is going to establish his authority. And he said, these are the words of the amen. Now, we can just kind of take this word and just kind of go right back into the Old Testament. Isaiah uh, has this passage that he writes, whoever invokes the blessing in the land, they will do so by the God of truth. And in Hebrew, that word truth is amin, or what we say as amen. And it means to, to be truthful, to be biting, to, uh, what's here, or to be valid. And when it's used in relation to a person, when it's used in the context of describing someone, it means that that person is exactly who they say they are. There's no hypocrisy in the person. Maybe a modern-day translation for us could be, these are the words of the unchanging one. Because Jesus is who he says he is. And he will not and does not change. And then this idea is further sealed by a true, uh, the faithful and true witness. Christ, he's 100%. There is no doubt about what he says about himself, what the scriptures talk about him, there's no doubt that it's all true. His promises to his people are all true. And then he'll go on to say, the ruler of God's creation. And there's this this theme throughout the New Testament that that's who Jesus is. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say that through him all things were made. Nothing was made without him. And then we find and we read in Colossians that he was the firstborn of all creation. Through him, all things were created. And guess what? Jesus holds all things together. You are able to sit here in one piece because Jesus is holding you together. I know that sounds a little strange, but it's the truth. Jesus holds it all together. And then he'll go on to the church. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's, that's a tough thing to hear as a church, I think. He'll tell them, you know, I, I know your deeds. And this is a common theme, again, through these letters. Jesus knows what goes on in the church, which means he knows what's going on in your life. Even those things that you don't want people to know that are going on in your life, Jesus knows what's going on in your life. And those deeds of the people in this church show them that they're neither hot nor they're cold. Now, I think that many times we have misinterpreted this text. Now, I believe that, in fact, we have misinterpreted this text because we take this idea of hot and cold, meaning spiritual passion or spiritual fervor, but it just, we shut those fans off. I don't like them. Because they go, wah, wah, wah. All the way, just click it off. Okay, where was I? Neither hot nor cold. And we take it to mean spiritual fervor. But it doesn't make sense in the context of how it's written. Because why would Jesus want his church to be cold? Why would Jesus want the church to have no passion for living the gospel or living for the kingdom of God? Isn't a little bit of passion better than none? Isn't being a little lukewarm better than being perfectly cold? Now, what we have to understand is about six miles to the north, there was a city called Heropolis. And this city had these hot springs that were all across the city. Now, 
Because of these springs and the high mineral content of them, people would come for the medicinal purposes to kind of soak in them. The temperature of these hot springs can get well over 100 degrees. And this water was piped to Laodicea through aqueducts six miles away. But by the time it got there, it was lukewarm, tepid. And because of the mineral content in the water, at that temperature, it would it would make you hurl if you drank it because it, it just, it would smell, you know, you ever smell sulfur water? It smells like eggs, okay? Stinky, yes. And so the water it needed time once it got there to, to cool and to settle and let all that stuff settle to the bottom. Now, uh, 10 miles to the east was the city of Colossae. Colossae was known for its pure, very cold drinking water. In fact, there weren't too many other cities that were so well-resourced with this kind of water as Colossae was. And what Jesus is trying to tell this church, the, the, the comparison he's trying to make is the hot springs of Heropolis bring healing. And yet this church does nothing to heal anybody, spiritually, emotionally, even physically. And Jesus wishes that they would be a church that would heal. And the waters in Colossae being pure and, and, and cold, they would bring refreshment. They would bring life. And Jesus is telling the church, I wish that you were a church that would bring life to people, spiritual life, a life that's worth living, abundant life as Jesus has promised us. But instead, this church is lukewarm. Pretty much Jesus is telling them, you make me sick because he will spit them out of his mouth. This church does nothing to heal. This church does nothing to bring life. And they're pretty much good for nothing. You know, this is a very different picture of the peace sign. Everything's all right. Jesus with the long flowing product in his hair, blue eyes and a smile on his face all the time. He is very angry and very upset with this church, telling them, you're doing nothing. You're good for nothing. But that's not all. He'll go on. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. Do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, just so you know, those aren't endearing qualities for a church, okay? Just so we're clear, you don't need, a, you don't need a, a book to learn that in. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. The material wealth of Laodicea is very well established. The city was very, very wealthy. And the church in this city was also very, very wealthy. They had everything that they needed in the material possessions. They were way ahead of many churches in other cities. They were way ahead of, of many just, just common people in other cities. And they also believed that they were spiritually wealthy, that they had it figured out. They were singing all the right hymns. They were praying all the right prayers, that their lifestyle was honoring to God. They believed that they, they were walking right with God, and they achieved that through their own efforts because they've gotten wealthy 
through the exports in the city, through the trade that's coming in. They're a self-made city, and so they believe they're a self-made church. And so spiritually, this idea has leaked into their mindset that said that we have achieved our spirituality on our own. Look at what we've done. Look at how good we are. And Jesus, he just shakes their head, man, and he tells them, you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And the last three of those things, poor, blind, and naked, are in direct relation to what the city had their most, was most pride, or proud of. The fact that they were very, very wealthy. The fact that they had this ISAV that, that was um, exported around the world. And they were very proud of the garments that they would make and sell. And what Christ is telling them, you know what? Those things, they mean absolutely nothing. He tells them, buy, buy from me gold, gold that's been refined so that you can be truly rich. Jesus wants to bring spiritual wealth to this church. Wealth that means something. Wealth that matters. A wealth that cannot be achieved on their own, but only by following the risen Christ, following the living Jesus. And he tells them, wear, buy white clothes from me to wear. The church was shameful in who it was not. The church is shameful in who it had become. And they are spiritually naked. In the ancient world, to be naked, it was a symbol of, of judgment and humiliation. And Jesus is saying to this church, you are under my judgment because look at your humiliation. Buy for me white clothes. And the idea of something white, especially in the book of Revelations, is this idea of, of righteousness. Put on my righteousness, not your own self-made spirituality, but my righteousness, that you will no longer be naked. And then he tells them to buy eye salve. This church thought they could see into spiritual matters. They thought they had it figured out. They thought they were walking with God and doing all the right things. But Jesus calls them blinds. Open your spiritual eyes to see what's really going on before it's too late and before you can't be healed. The church of Laodicea really thought they had it together. They really thought they were doing all the right things. Maybe they had some outside-the-wall things going. They thought, man, look at what we're doing. They collected food for the food bank. Look at, look at what we're doing. It's this, this the spirit of self-sufficiency that got them into trouble. This, this idea that, that they can do it, and they have it all figured out, and they can get it done, was their stumbling block. They were self-sufficient, and didn't need anybody's help, including the Lord. And Jesus told them, yeah, you've, you've missed the boat. You've missed the train on this. You know, as I go through this journey of faith, I'm learning more and more that to feel or to think that you are self-sufficient and have it all together is a very dangerous place for a follower of Jesus. It's a very dangerous place to think that you got it figured out, that you know what you're doing all the time, even half of the time, that you got this. 
See, the danger is that we get so tied up in our plans, we get so tied up in our ideas that we can't even hear God anymore. Or, or even worse, you just, you just so focused on what you want to do and getting it done, you completely ignore God because, I mean, what's he really going to do anyway, right? In my personal time of, of study and reading the Bible, I, I try to separate preparing for sermons and, and then just see what God would have to say to me on the, on the side. Uh, I'm reading through the, the Minor Prophets, which are a very interesting read. Um, Francis Chan challenges people to read the Bible as if it were the only resource that you have. So no commentaries, no online stuff, just what's the Bible say? which can be dangerous if you're not careful, but it's a, it's a good practice to get into. And so I'm going through the Minor Prophets, and a few weeks ago, I was uh, in the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah, uh, I was reading the first three chapters, and Zechariah's having this vision, and, and God's talking to the angel, and the angel's talking to Zechariah. And, and this, is, this is what the angel said. Then, then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. And so I got this, I landed on that whole, that God is angry with the nations that feel secure. Now, in the morning when I, when I come into the office, I open that window and I kind of like a cat, I sit on the windowsill and, and I kind of do my reading and praying and I'm letting all this kind of just churn in my mind and, and I'm thinking and then I'm thinking about it in the context of the first three chapters and early off in chapter one, it's talking about God's mercy on Jerusalem and God's mercy on Zion and how amazing and generous and ever present it is. And it's something that he is going to pour out to these people and they don't even deserve it, but because it's mercy, he's going to give it to them anyway. And so I'm thinking about God's mercy. I'm thinking about that. He's angry with nations that feel secure and I'm preparing for this teaching. So I got this whole jambalaya thing going on in my head and and I'm just kind of working it through. And I started to think, about the mercy of God. And I've always believed that God's mercy is about we are not getting the punishments that we actually deserve. That because of Jesus Christ, the mercy of God has been poured out upon us and we will not be punished for our sin. And, and that's God's mercy. But I, I began to kind of mull that over and I'm like, is that it? Is that all God's mercy is? Is just, I don't get punished? And I'm going to challenge you with, no, it's, there's, there's more to it than that. There was a quote I read a while ago, and I'm so, I looked for it. I don't know who said it. I tried to find it uh, in, in the books I was reading, but I couldn't. So I don't know who said it, and I'm going to paraphrase it. But it goes like this. In this life, we fall, and God, he picks us back up. Both are the gifts of his mercy. In this life, we fall, and God picks us up, and both, both are the gift of his mercy. I'm going to share something very personal with you all this morning. And I do this as your pastor, but I want it to end here. I don't want any encouraging emails sent to me. 
I don't want any discouraging emails either sent to me, so you can keep those to yourself, okay? Some of you might not like what I'm going to say. Some of you might decide that, well, maybe this church isn't for us anymore. I'll respect that. But I think this needs to be said, and it's good that you find out now. So here it is. Sometimes I don't feel like I have what it takes to be your pastor. Sometimes I just feel that my skill set is not sufficient enough to get the job done and to lead you well. And so for the last, for the last couple of years, I've been looking into opportunities to get educated, to enter into some type of program. And, you know, I, and everything is so expensive out there. And, you know, I looked around and some things I'm just not, they won't accept me for because of my educational background. And I finally found one last year. And it was something that we could afford. It was something that I legitimately had a really good shot to get into. And so in November, oh, and it was, it was it focused around this idea of spiritual formation, which is something I'm very passionate about for myself and for, for the church. And so I applied in November of last year, had to go through the application process. I had to write all this stuff out, and I had to have Amy correct it for me and then mail it in. I had to get references. People had to send those in. And then in April of this year, which is six months later, I had to wait. I had my interview. Now, I just want you all to know, for the record, and this is being recorded, I killed that interview, okay? I mean, if the Vatican overheard it, the conclave would be right now, I'd be Pope. I'm just saying, okay? So very shortly after that, they told me that I was not accepted into that program. Right? I'm like, for real? They told me I was put on a waiting list and that for consideration for next year. Have you ever had one of those disappointments in your life that just, just takes the wind right out of your sail? I mean, it's just like, oh, that was... That was one for me. I was just, duh, I was miserable. You can ask Sandy for about a week. I was pouting, didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want to see any of you. I, I, really, man, this was years of, of just trying to figure out what's the next step. I prayed through it. I, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I heard from God. God wanted me to do this. He wanted me to apply to this one. So I, did, I was pretty confident, though there was a part of me that, thought maybe not they were going to be stupid and not take me but i was sure that they were going to, they were intelligent there and they would obviously want me but i didn't get accepted so my desire to learn more was put on hold my desire to better myself and grow what i thought as a pastor was put on hold my desire to become more self sufficient to put on hold. What I'm learning through this entire experience over the last few months is my feeling like I don't have what it takes to be that pastor for you is God's mercy upon me. When I feel like I don't have the answer, the right answer, or any of the answers, that's God's mercy upon me. When I scratch my head in that corner office and go, what am I doing? And, and, and real, real, sometimes worry sets in. It's God's mercy on me. Because it's in those moments 
that I'm forced to go to my knees and seek him and seek what he would have for me and not what Dennis would have for himself or for the church. Something I figured out over the last week or so. If I ever get to the point where I declare myself a very self-sufficient, self-made pastor, here is your obligation. Fire me. You'll be doing all of us a favor. Though at that point, I'll probably be arrogant and stubborn, and I'm going to go kicking and screaming, but just do it anyway. Because I believe, and I am believing, and I am learning that God does not want self-sufficient people. God does not want self-made people. God wants spirit-made people and spirit-led people. That the Holy Spirit would be active and moving in their life. That he would lead them and guide them and shape them and mold them who, who, into who he wants them to be and not what that person thinks that they should be. You know, I'm going to continue to look for an opportunity to to educate myself. Who knows, maybe next year I'll be accepted into that program. I might turn them down this time just to go na 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 na. But anyway, I, you know, I don't know. Um, we'll, 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 see, we'll see what happens. I don't know what the Lord has for me in that. I do keep a very rigorous reading schedule. I read a lot of books. And a lot of books that, that, that really challenge me. A lot of books that wouldn't be accepted in the Christian realm. That would be kind of on the outskirts because I like to hear what other people have to say. And I continue, I continue to pray and seek the Lord the best that I know how at this point in my journey. You know, maybe, maybe it was God's mercy on me that I did not get accepted into that program. Because he wanted me to learn the hard way his mercy, because he wanted me to learn the hard way, or maybe the easy way, the sin of self-sufficiency and how dangerous it could be. Because he wanted that truth to be growing in me, that I would experience that truth, just not hear and learn about it and read about it. Richard Rohr says in his new book that before the truth sets you free, it tends to make you miserable. And I have experienced that firsthand. Because before I came to this truth, and it's been a good month and a half since that whole thing went down, it made me miserable. In fact, I unfriended them on Facebook. I showed them, huh? And that's, that's where I was, though. Before the truth sets you free, it tends to make you miserable. The church in Laodicea was a self-made self-sufficient church. They didn't need anything. They had it all together. They found their strength in themselves. They found their strength in their wealth. They found their own spirituality that it was not God's gift to them, but they got it all figured out. And it was what they were doing and how they were living. And it made Jesus sick. it would seem that they trusted in themselves more than they trusted in the Lord. Now, I know it's the 4th of July and there's a lot of people out and about this weekend, but just, just look around. Take a minute and look around and see who's here. 
Go ahead, you can do it. Just meet some eyes. I know it's awkward. We don't like to look each other in the eyes. We're in New England. I get it. I get it. Remember the faces. Let's make a promise to each other. A covenant. A pact. Pinky swear. I mean, whatever it's, whatever it's going to take. Let's never be that church. Let's never get to that point where we are the church of Laodicea. And I pray to God that we will never become a wealthy church. Maybe have a BMW, but not, 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 you, not a wealthy church. As we continue to be a place where it's okay not to be okay, let's also continue to be a church who admits that we don't have all the answers. In fact, you know what? We don't even have all the questions. As we continue to, to journey together, let's continually remind ourselves that God is he's in control and that God is good, even when it doesn't seem like he is. Even in the disappointing things we experience in our lives, it may just be the mercy of God being poured out on you. And as we, we grow together as a community, let's continue to be the church that says, you know what, we don't have it all figured out. And be honest with that. But here's something we do have. We worship the one who does. We worship the one who has all the answers, who knows all the questions, who has it all figured out who is in control of it all. That is our God, and that's who we worship. Let's always be that church. And it's going to take encouragement from each other. When somebody is going through that thing, let's say, man, don't, don't lose hope. God is good. I know it doesn't seem like he is right now, but he can't be anything else but good. He's God. And sometimes the hard things in our life, the disappointments are his mercy on us. And see, this God, man, he loves us. He loves us in our brokenness. He loves us in our frustrations. He loves us in, in all the junk that we get ourselves into. He loves us in our stupidity because of Jesus Christ. And so let's be that church will always continue to lean into him even when it doesn't make sense. Let's, let's pinky promise that we will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and we will just forget about our own. God, I want to thank you for the lessons in life that we can learn if we just look to you. God, I pray a blessing upon everyone here this morning that they would look to you and you would teach them and instill your spirit in them, that they would learn the things that they need to learn so they can move on to the next one. And thank you, Lord, that you don't give up on us, that we are always in process with you and that you love us beyond what we can ever imagine, but you love us so much that you're not going to let us stay where we are. And Lord, when it's painful, pick us up. 
when we're discouraged, pick us up. When we're angry at you, forgive us. But even in our anger, Lord, I know that you wrap your arms around us and you love us. Let us be the church who doesn't think we are it. Let us be the church who worships the one who is. We thank you and praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.